Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. to the Inspired Evolution and it is such a treat to be here today. Actually a super treat because uh, we're actually here for something super personal and uh, super relatable but something that we would normally perhaps avoid. So to join us on this episode we've got Zenith Morago. Zenith how are you today? I'm good thanks. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. For those tuning into Zenith for the first t- first first time, <laughs> for the first time, um, she's a, she's a marriage celebrant. She's a death walker, which we're going to talk about, and that's a very interesting term there. She's a consultant, educator, facilitator, speaker, and author. Um, and a lot of her work these days is uh, around the process of helping people grieve through death and dying. Um, and it may sound a bit sober. But this is what we're going to talk about today. So welcome, Zena. Thanks. It's, it's actually not sober at all. It's an incredible process to experience uh, death or dying, especially sudden death, as fully as you can. So mm. I hope that we can cover some of that today. I think that's the mission, yeah. So um, this conversation was prompted because basically I lost a, a very dear mentor of mine um, and she was... I know it's hard to sort of describe someone as being taken before their time because, you know, some part of me believes that everybody comes and goes as their, as their lessons sort of befit them. Um, but I also lost a very dear pet um, in the same sort of window. And it sounds kind of ridiculous, you know, like some people will find it a bit weird that, you know, the death of a pet means so much, but it really does. Um, this pet was really dear to me. And um, so ha- like being surrounded by the loss of these two um, really – I guess, inspirational individuals that meant so much to me in my life. Um, And I think with the culmination of perhaps maybe turning 30 had something to do with that as well, Um, just being a little bit more mature. In the past, I've I've lost people for sure. Um, But I think my brain's been pretty good at compartmentalizing it and putting it off as something that I'm never really having to 
interface with it. Um, but now it's starting to come home and hit home a little bit that actually there is this finality to everything. And um, it's been quite a surprising time um, for me personally. I've just come to realize that um, I don't actually, you know, perhaps process negative emotions as effectively as I thought I did. Um, even just the idea of sitting with, um, you know, the loss that was there that is ever so um, obvious at the moment um, is quite a profound um, day-to-day thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, death is a natural and sacred part of our lives. And I too would say that people can't die too soon. And, you know, none of us know what happens when someone dies. What, but most people seem to take comfort in that something lives on, something leaves the body. Mm-hmm. And it's my experience after, you know, 25, 30 years in, in this work, you know, sitting with people at their bedsides, sitting with families at the kitchen table, speaking to people at funerals and in public events and workshops, that, you know, the majority of people take comfort in that. They don't need to have a definitive perspective of what that is, you know, whether we become part of nature, whether we stay in some uh, visual form, whether we become sort of ethereal. But most people take comfort in something leaves the body. And once you have an experience and, you know, what you're saying about the, the death of your pet was, equal, you know, maybe equally as um, uh, profound for you, as the death of someone else. You know, each death has an equation, and I would say this is the equation. So it depends on who that person is and how they die or who that being is in the case of animals and how they die, who you are and your relationship to them and your experience of death so far will give you a response to that particular loss or death. So it will be different every time. And so you might have the death of someone that's not so close to you now and you'll be fine. You'll think, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then the next one may be a different relationship and the, you know, the response from you will be different. Mm. But the more familiar we become, the more resilience we have until it's someone close to us or until it's a shocking or traumatic death. And then, bang, you know, we will have a response that is, is more um, intense. Yeah, it's fascinating that you mentioned that because um, basically my mentor, she passed away um, with bowel cancer. And, um, yeah, it was an interesting process to be a part of because um, my relationship with her was relatively close, um, but it was more that she passed um, and I sort of was latched onto the belief that she would make it through her treatment. Um, yeah, so, and that's, the, that's an attitude that a lot of people have when someone has a disease that is probably going to kill them. Sometimes it doesn't. Hmm. But what I'm advising people when I, if people ask me in those situations is that you need to set a place at the table for death in any of those experiences because then and put a bit of effort into imagining how that might be. And even though that might be a desired, undesired outcome, you can just give it a bit of thought and you can leave it alone. But if you plant that seed, then 
it will support you when that death comes. But if you put all your time supporting someone, yes, you can do it, this is going to be okay, you're not going to die, and, it, and all your attitude is in that, when they do die, then you have nothing to support you mm. in that experience. You haven't practiced at all for that for that outcome so you don't have to feed it but you set a place for it at the table yeah there's an interesting uh, i really respect the way you're sharing that because basically what came up for me was this person particular person um was very prominent in the community and there's quite a few people saying their goodbyes before she had even passed um and i found that quite um I don't know, it was kind of, it rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. You just talked about leaving a space at the dinner table for death. And I think that's really profound um, because, as you mentioned, I didn't have a lot of, um, I guess I didn't save any space for that. Um, and so it does, it does come a bit of a shock um, when that happens. Uh, the question that came to me was I, there were a lot of people in her transitioning that were already, starting to see her transition and started saying their goodbyes. And I found that a bit hard to deal with, just knowing what I know a little bit about the placebo um, and how if people were saying their goodbyes before she had already crossed over, that was almost planting in her head that she was crossing over. And I felt there were so many people in her life already doing that that I felt that actually she needs somebody at the very least to be there that's like, actually, I can't wait to see you that is healthy and vibrant and radiant on the other side of all of this and that there is a potential that you'll actually make it through. Yeah, and that attitude is a very common attitude, but you can hold the two. Mm. But if you, if you don't, then you... You know, you you may have an influence on her journey. Sure. And and that's what you're saying with, um, you know, what, what you might say is the placebo effect. But her journey is hers and yours mm. is yours. And so if you were already watching other people, then you would just weigh that up. But you can only behave in the way that you can. So if you are just behaving like that for her, you have to look at, did that make it easier for you? Were you fully, uh, were you starting to get ready for her to die? And if you, mm. if you were, but you weren't behaving on that, then, you know, you just, have to, you just have to listen to yourself and do the best you can, just like she's doing the best she can and the others were doing the best they can. But yeah, so I think in hindsight, perhaps it was a bit foolish of me. But um, at the time, I, I truly felt like I was operating in the best interest for both of sure. us. Sure, and it's a very common way of behaving for lots of people. I, I, and, you know, with respect, you're quite young. Mm. And so if you look at that equation that, uh, you know, the part of how you are, who mm. you are, you, their relationship to you and your experience of death. So mm. next time that occurs... You're going, to have, you're going to look back and you're going to look back on that experience with her and then you will behave however you choose to behave with that next person. Mm. But, you know, you, it's a sort of disservice to the person not to say goodbye and it's a sort of disservice to yourself. It's well-intentioned but the, the outcome of that is what you're sitting in now. You know, and that's okay because we, it's a journey, 
you know, life's a whole journey. We're learning with each experience that life offers to us. And so, mm. you know, I'm in, in, I'm in my 60s now with, you know, a lot of death experience with friends, with family, with complete strangers. And so I'm very familiar with that. And so the way I approach it all is because of that familiarity, because of other people's experiences and their courage in facing their own death and their courage in facing the loss of someone that they love, especially with sudden death. Mm. So that sort of segues into what I was going to ask you is like, you know, how did you become, um, what is a death walker and how did you become one? <laughs> so I, there are, there are a range of terms. So I've spent the last 25, 30 years working with people in this area. So I live in Byron Bay in mm -hmm. New South Wales, which is, <laughs> you know, yeah, and I would say, you know, Byron's a great place to live, mm -hmm. but it is a really great place to die because we have created a culture here that allows people to stay at home, be cared for. We know what our legal rights are. We know what our social rights are. We have a very empowered community uh, in a lot of different fields. But I've become, in those last 25 years, I've become a, a, a very valuable community resource. And because we're a small town and a small area, you know, there's Byron, Mullen, Bruns, and a bit further afield. Mm. So when someone's dying or or someone has just died, then someone generally says to someone, oh, let's ring Zenith. Let's ask her. She'll know the answer. Or yeah. let's talk to Zenith. She'll know what we can do. Or that will make us feel better. So I spend a lot of time every day, you know, bumping into people at the farmer's market, at parties, at the beach, wherever. And death's become a very... Uh, discussable thing for us because it's become very normal because we can all be at the wedding, we can all be at the party, and then we're all at the funeral. Mm. And one, once a year I also put on a ceremony, a big community ceremony called the Day of the Dead. Mm. And people come to honour their dead. So that might be people who have died that year or over a longer period of time. And that has really, it's like a balm each year. And this year, we, or last year, we did it in November. And maybe 30 of the people that came said when, at the end when they had an opportunity to speak, they said, we are here because we didn't get to go to the funeral of whoever that was for them. And we feel like this is like coming to a ceremony for them. Mm. And Really, I've just spent my entire time responding to what is asked of me. So I, I worked in law. I was a paralegal. I became a marriage celebrant and I became a death celebrant because a friend of ours died suddenly and we took her after she'd had an autopsy, which is the legal pretty standard thing if someone dies suddenly and they do, a doctor can't sign off on the cause of death. She died suddenly and then we went to collect her body from the hospital. We took it home. We washed and dressed her. We drove her in our own car 
we built a coffin, we uh, allowed people to come to the home to have a sort of vigil Mm. and to spend time with her body. And then we drove it to the crematorium and we created a ceremony there. And then we pushed her coffin and her in that coffin that we had decorated and it was an open coffin at the ceremony and then we pushed her into the cremator. And so as, as a group of family and friends, for someone who died very suddenly, because we took charge of that process and we were involved at every step and we did everything we wanted to do, and in doing something, especially for men, men and women do it very, the same but sort of different, like we do everything the same but sort of different. <laughs> and... So we, because we took, we reclaimed that death process with her and it really changed the way we experienced her loss. So we were sad and we were shocked and, but we felt empowered because we had given her the sort of ceremony that she would have wanted and that we needed. It was a meaningful and appropriate for her ceremony and for us but also by washing and dressing her body, by placing it in the coffin ourselves, we really got to see that she was completely dead and that her body was empty. And whatever it was that had made her who she was, uh, she, the body wasn't her. Mm. So a lot of people have a very sort of spiritual belief that, oh, they're not that body, you know, that we all, we're spiritual beings in a human body, but we are very familiar with that, that body of that person. It's, it's sort of what we relate to on a physical level, on an emotional level, is the person that, like I'm talking to you, I'm seeing you by Zoom, uh, otherwise I just could be talking to you in the ether, you know, by, mm. on audio. But right. I'm relating to you because I can see you physically, so I have an idea of who you are. Mm. And, but if I didn't have that, my experience would be very different. Sure. So we become attached to the body. Mm. And so what happens for lots of people, especially, you know, what we call spiritual people. And when people use terms like transitioning, uh, or passing over then and, and also the same with suicide that we don't actually get that they are dead or they're dying. And so that, that doesn't land so strongly in us as using those words because we all know what dead feels like. When someone's dead, they're not there. We, we don't know where they've gone, but all we're dealing with is that loss of them. We can wish them well on their journey, but we are dealing with the physical loss of that person in our lives. So we can still talk to their spirit. We can talk to their memory. Uh, thoughts and love for them will arise in our response, but we miss them and it's the physical part of them that we miss. So if you can be with the body and in that washing, in that dressing, your mind starts to process and your emotions and your nervous system starts to really process that they, that person is dead that body is there, but they are not that body. It's a sort of empty body. And children get it really quickly. 
So children will come to the person's body, they'll come to the coffin and they'll look in and they'll, you know, especially if there's a couple of them or if they're with a parent, and they'll say, oh, that's not Zenith. She's not there. And because they see the emptiness, they see that the body is not the person. And it's a really great experience to have when you stand next to children saying that because it really lands for you and you think, Mm -hmm. You know, kids can, because kids see magic all the time. They're very easy to, uh, but they feel things that are real. Mm. And we have a busy mind, so we're in our attachment to that person, which can be very, you know, we can, you know, um, what can we do? We can uh, trick ourselves in, on an emotional level that we're attached to the body. But really, we should be wishing them well if we have a spiritual belief. So it's fascinating. Like even in this conversation, we've gotten deeper into the conversation of death than I have with a lot of people that um, I've spoken to in the past. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, somehow sitting here having this conversation with you. Um, palatable is an interesting word, but the conversation around death is um, it's not as chunky um while you and i are talking i'm acutely aware of this um and my next question that immediately arises from that is you know there's also this odian sort of uh connotation or belief or stigma i think is probably the right word around the idea that like you know if you're consistently thinking about death it's somewhat morbid um and that you know it's just like it's a dark sort of space to be in but speaking to you there seems to be very little darkness um and i think it's um my question is more how do you not let death get to you if that is the question um or is it like you know yeah, that sort of conventional <laughs> idea of like death and the darkness and all the negative thoughts. Like, I'm sure that's pretty common for well, a lot of people. I I do let death get to me, mm. but not in the way that you are talking about. So death gets to me, and what it has done to me because of my familiarity with it, because of the amount of people I have been with when they were dying, and being with their families or being with sudden death. What it's done is it's really polished me into something much more beautiful than I could have imagined. And what I have now is a sort of spontaneous joy that arises. So we all have a response to loss and based on that equation that we discussed at the beginning. But then what happens is, for me, is I hear that news that someone's died and I'm sad for a moment And my body might cry depending on my relationship to that person. Mm -hmm. But then almost immediately I have this sort of this joy arise. It's a bit like, you know, when you're walking down the street and you see an old friend that you're not expecting to see, someone that you really love, you know Mm -hmm. that feeling, how that arises in you, and you're just like, "Ah!" I didn't, you know, and it's sort of you can't fake that. You can't mm. pretend that joy at seeing that person. And it's a similar quality that arises in me. So what I would say is that those experiences over a long period of time have... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. have created a response that is a true acceptance and an immediate acceptance that they have died, they have transitioned into some other form, but it's not an intellectual perspective or Mm. an intellectual understanding, which I think a lot of people try to have, but they don't actually have embodied Mm. in their response So my embodied response now allows me to be with people, even when I'm sitting with parents of dead children who have died suddenly. And so even recently in the last three weeks, a young couple here um, had a baby, the baby was breached um, and the baby died because uh, the mother could not deliver that baby and the uh, it was it, it, the baby was coming, and they weren't prepared for a breach, and they weren't prepared for um, they didn't have someone there to deliver that baby. Mm. So the baby died. So I went to be with them. Now that is a very shocking experience for them. Very sad, and they were very upset, and they mm. had to deal with the police and the ambulance and everything. But. What happens for me is I come neutral to that experience. I wait and see what is happening. So I don't bring my own shit, my mm-hmm. own emotional baggage to that. I come clean, I come kind, I come present, and I come neutral. And then I respond to, to, because that is their loss. So I don't overlay it with my distress that they have had a stillborn baby. I come and I offer them whatever I can in that experience. So that might be comfort. That might be something like a life raft in a choppy sea. Mm. That might be love. That might Mm. be legal knowledge. And that's exactly what was the most needed from me in that experience. And so I, I don't find death morbid. It can be sudden. It can be shocking. It can be traumatic. But the most important thing I'm finding now after a lot of years is that the language we use around it. And so especially for someone like you, who obviously is you know, a thinking, feeling person, but you really want to, and this goes to everybody, I'm talking to you, but anybody who's listening to this, just think about how you use that language, how you bandy it around and try to temper that with what you actually mean rather than just using language that is common. 
but doesn't necessarily pertain to exactly what you're talking about. So even when, so when I say sudden or shocking, I don't mean traumatic. When I say traumatic, I mean traumatic. Mm. And they're very different experiences. And so I find that by using the, the best language, the most appropriate language with people, that can also offer them a hand to take them from one place to another. Mm. And so often I'm what Americans call a first responder. So I'm often one of the first people they are talking to either while they're dying or when that death has occurred. And I, I come to that and offer the cleanest, best uh, assistance I can. And so I don't say anything that I, that I don't mean or that I haven't thought about, but now that language just arises. Mm. So once you start throwing words about, and this is not an attack on you, this is just, you know, think about it for everyone, is once you start banding words about like grief even, mm. because some people are happy someone has died. So sometimes I go to families, you know, the parent has died and I go and sit at the kitchen table and, I, you know, I don't go in there and say, I'm sorry for your loss, which most people think is a pretty safe starting point. But uh, I say, how is that for you? And I, I say that because I mean it. You can't just say it glibly. Oh, and how is that for you that your mum or your dad has died? But sometimes people say, well, actually, you know, we're really glad they're dead. They've made our life a misery for the last 50 years. They were selfish, they were unkind, they were cruel. And I sit there and go, oh, okay. And then we proceed from there. But if I go in thinking, oh, it must be terrible, I'm so sorry that your dad's died or your mum's died. Yeah, you've tainted it with your own frame. You're overlaying it. So you want to see what's happening so you can respond accordingly. But you don't, and even if that is, you know, even with children. So sometimes I go to families and a small child has died and it's shocking and it's sad. And sometimes the circumstances are traumatic. But sometimes I will say, you know, I, I will just sit with them. I will be with them. I will walk that journey with them. But I cannot take that pain away. And it's their right to feel that pain. That is their love transformed. And if someone tries to make that better or tidy it up, they cannot have that process fully. But, and they need, you know, they need to feel their love for that child. But sometimes they'll say things like, well, you know, you know, they came to us, we loved them up as much as we could. We couldn't stop the circumstances of that death. They didn't contribute towards that in any way. So they are just in, in the fact that that child is gone. And sometimes if they have a strong belief, they will, fit, they will be, okay is not quite the right word, but they will be able to bear that. So a lot of people say around death of children, oh, my God, that must be unbearable. Well, if you label it unbearable, that doesn't offer people the chance to bear it. Yeah, right. But, but the parents do have to bear that pain. And so you want to 
you know, you want to be kind to them. You don't want to, you know, add to their distress, add to their uh, sorrow that they they are in right now. So it's it's much more complex than that, but it's sort of that's the simple mm-hmm. um, way of being with it. So, as a death walker, what I've, I'm walking towards my own death, the best I can, and I'm also walking with other people who invite me to to experience their journey with them. But it's not my place to deny them that pain. I might ease it in some way. But, you know, we all know that some of the great challenging things in our life are the things that teach us the most. And we, we're doing that from as small children. You know, we're, we're climbing that tree and we're, we're hanging on and we're reaching that little bit extra to get our little fingers around the next branch or to find a place for our foot. And sometimes we fall. But if we don't attempt to climb that tree and go, go beyond our capacity or what we think is our capacity, we don't learn and we don't see what we're capable of and we don't then have that sense of, wow, you know, that was a big learning. Wow. Or I won't be climbing that tree again. <laughs> or, you know, but sometimes, you know, life is full of opportunities and the more we take them fully and the more we practice and experience what, what it has to offer us, then the, the more rich our lives become and the more capable we become. And all the small losses will prepare us for the big ones. Yeah, I think that's profound. And um, what you're sharing has definitely been, thank you so much for sharing. I think something that is really true is just even in the process of sitting with um, the death of others, it's really gotten me really clear on um, just my own relationship with life or clearer if we can, um, like knowing that, you know, there is a finality to, you know, even this experience, um, which is so wonderful. Um, and realizing what it is that I really want to experience while I'm here, you know, and what it is that I really want to contribute. Um, the word legacy comes to mind every yeah. now and then as well. Yeah. Which are big thoughts for someone so young. That's great. <laughs> but you know, I, I have a couple of things that are helping me and mm-hmm. I just think, when, when life offers me something, I think, will this help me at the time of my death? Mm. And will this, um, will this matter at the time of my death? So mm. it really helps you not to sweat the small stuff. Yeah. So, but- you know, and you might take a stand on something. You know, you might be on a principle. You might think it's important. You might be arguing with someone. And you might feel satisfied because you're right and you've won the point. And then you just think, actually, will this matter to me uh, if, if, if I don't have a friendship with that person? And sometimes it will, it will influence how you behave. It really starts to polish what's important and what isn't. Mm. Thank you. So my question that comes out of there is, um, you know, from, for some people, um, I'm sure having interfaced with so many people over so many years, you must have met some people with some a variety of range of, um, I guess, emotions, yeah, um, in their process of passing away. So 
is there, you know, some people must fear death and some people must be somewhat okay with it. Um, is there something you can tell us more about that process for individuals like themselves when they're passing away? So less about people and their loved ones, but more about individuals' relationships with their death and anything that stands out for you? It's remarkable in that. Well, people can only do what they are capable of. Mm. And most people try to experience life as fully as they can, but yeah. a lot of people don't. You know, they're, they're sort of living a half-life yeah. or they're afraid to live fully for whatever reason. Mm. So I would, as a general statement, I would say that people who are afraid to live mm. will gem generally be afraid to die. But the exception mm -hmm. to that is when people, life has been really harsh for them and sometimes people are relieved that they are going to die. They're like, right, I don't have to, I can accept that. That's a relief. I don't have to make any more decisions. Life, I won't suffer so much. I, I won't have to worry about the mundane. And so some people are, are overcome by this like deep relaxation, this deep acceptance. And other people think that might be denial. Mm. So some people, and denial is a really tricky concept to, or a piece of language that you, you take on or can overlay on a situation. So some people are not in denial. They know they're going to die, but they do not want to discuss it. They do not want everybody's sympathy or every, they don't want everybody else's shit coming in their direction. Mm. They're busy. So what I would say as a, as a sort of absolute for me is that it doesn't matter what the external circumstances are. They will contribute to that experience. It doesn't matter the people you have, it doesn't matter, you know, if you've got a nice view, it doesn't matter if you're at home or in hospital or even on the side of the road after a car accident or a motorbike accident. What really matters is what is happening for you or for anybody else on the inside. So there's a sort of cliche that death's an inside job or happiness is an inside job. Mm. And I would absolutely uh, support that. Because I see people who are, they may be in physical suffering and, and I would advocate for pain relief. And a lot of people here are concerned that if they take um, a high dose of a painkiller that they won't be present, they won't have a conscious death, whatever that might be for them. Mm. But I would say it's very hard to have a conscious death when you are in physical pain, extreme mm. physical pain. So for those of us that are women who have birthed, then we know that in order to birth that baby, we, ha we generally are going to experience some physical pain. Mm. But, it's, but it's going to be worth it mm -hmm. <laughs> in the end. We're going to deliver that baby and that's that. And so death often will be accompanied by pain, but it shouldn't be excruciating. And if, mm. you, if you have medication or some therapeutic uh, thing that can help you with that, great. Because then, but at the same time, I cannot believe, I don't know, but I cannot believe that drugs like morphine, 
or any of the heavy-duty ones affect the spirit. They yeah. they have a they affect the mind. Yep. They might they might dull the mind, and they will assist the body with its pain. Mm. But it just doesn't make any sense to me with everything that I experienced that that drug will affect the, the spirit. spirit. Yeah. Because we we cannot even define it. No mm. one's in agreement what it is. Some people, you know, you can call it what you will. Mm. But and so because some people who are dying are sort of in a in a coma sort of state, they're unconscious, they're sleeping a lot, they're pulling in. Everything is pulling in in order to go out. That's what I see. And some people will be resistant to dying. Some people will be fearful to, of dying. Some people will be without fear. And then some people die with grace. And when you experience that, when you sit with someone who in their dying process, which may be you know, two or three months, uh, when they are dying with grace, they offer you such an incredible teaching. They offer you such an incredible transmission that you are never the same. You, so if it, that happened to me, oh, must be 20, maybe 15, 20 years ago now, a young guy was dying. I spent the afternoon with him. And uh, I was never the same after that because mm. he he taught me something and once I knew that was possible and I could feel it by being with him, that it meant for me that that was the only way to go because it it's the best way to go for the person and it's by far the best way to go for the people who will live on. Right, it, so it's an incredible transmission of generosity of grace and and that will make their experience when they walk on into their lives mm. without that person physically in it they won't collapse they won't be distraught they'll be sad and they'll feel a range of things but they will not be destroyed by that loss of that person because they have been walking towards that moment as con as as well as they can but when someone is gracious, and if anybody's listening to this who's had that experience, often what happens is people start to smile because that feeling spontaneously re-arises in them. And just like it's sort of arising in me, it's a memory, but it's more than that. It's an embodied experience. And that sustains me through a lot of other more tricky experiences. But people can only do their best. So the whole concept of a good death can be really challenging when it's a struggle for people. And, you know, we shouldn't be putting that measure on them. The, the better measure is to die well, whatever that might look like for them. Mm. That's profound. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and so you've got your book, which is The Intimacy of Death and Dying. Um, a book recently that I was exposed to was also... Um, a book written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, The Five Stages of Grief, she mentions, um, yeah. which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, yeah. So so let me just speak to that because I have never read that book. Yep. 
but it's sort of like a bio. And when when uh, Kubler Ross wrote that book, it was groundbreaking work mm. at its time. It really opened up. She was part of that first wave of people trying to wake people up to yep. doing death differently, to doing it well. Mm. But those, I think, if you read that book, those five stages were. This is my understanding. I haven't read it. Those five stages are also for the people who are accompanying that person. That individual. That was going to be my question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, rather than the dying person. But I'm sure the dying person does have some of those stages but mm. or some of those experiences. But I don't think you can take it as an absolute, you know, you pass through this, then you're in that, then you mm. work with that, and then you pass through that. They offer themselves as experiences, but some people will just get that in one go. Mm. They'll just go, okay. And, you know, when you sit with someone who's at, at peace with their dying, because if you're, if you're a 25-year-old person and you've just had a young baby and you get diagnosed with uh, something that is going to kill you, then, and, you know, you can try all the treatment that you want, and then it's you're still looking at death. You have a right to be, you know, really angry about that. You know, mm. but that anger is pain. It is hurt. It is. It, it's a whole lot of things, but it manifests as anger. Mm. Um, whereas if you're 85, you've lived a long life. You've done what you wanted to do. You've been maybe in a, a happy relationship. You know, you've ha you've done what, whether you have children or not, whether you've travelled or not, whether you've had a career or not, um, whether you've had a relationship or not. You know, then it's. I would say that you you look back and you think, well, I've lived that life, and the, the, it can be easier then if you've lived a long time. But some people are very gracious even when they're young, and often people who work with children who have a disease and who are dying will say that the children have this incredible wisdom that which may appear to be way beyond their years mm. but often it's they're not so attached and they don't you know they're not clinging on often they're just you know a lot of kids will accept what's happening because that's part of their experience so far so you can't blanket them all in the response of the person or the response of the people accompanying them the left behind makes a lot of sense thank you um and so you said you often ask yourself like will this matter in the face of death um or at the time of death like will this like will whatever whatever and that becomes really um clarifying in terms of you know not sweating the small stuff um do you sometimes find yourself surprised at what people do sweat uh, I wouldn't say I find myself surprised with that, although I probably have been. But <laughs> I, um, I very, even in my own life, in, as opposed to my professional life, um, I'm very rarely surprised. It takes a lot to surprise me because I'm so open to all possibilities and I try to be um, neutral. Mm. So I'm not in the past and I'm not in the future, I'm in the now. And mm -hmm. so whatever's coming, 
I'm just like, wow, okay, rather than wow. <laughs> you know, but occasionally mm. I say, wow, that's a surprise. I didn't see that coming. Mm. Um, so, so I am, but, but very rarely with Jeff, I have to say now. Mm. Yeah, the question was more oriented towards life. Like do you sometimes feel surprised yeah. that people are, you know, oftentimes I guess we spend a lot of time doing things that perhaps wouldn't enrich our experience at the dying moment. Oh. We spend most of yeah. our life doing things like this. So does that kind of, yeah. Yeah, but I suppose the longer I've, like I'm in my 60s now, I've lived a long time. I've lived a very full and fabulous life, I might add. And, um, you know, if I, I've lived also since I was 16 when my best friend died suddenly um, because of the neglect of the hospital when we were young. Um, I have lived most of my life thinking that I could die tomorrow and not in just, you know, in a, in a thought way, but I've lived that in an embodied way. Well, I could be dead tomorrow. So it's made me say yes to lots of things, not to worry about them, so it's a bit mm. like you. You asked me if I would do this. I just say yes. I don't, mm. you, know, you know, we didn't have much of a talk beforehand. We launched straight into it. We I had see. a problem with, with the technology. We just carry on. We don't mm. make a big fuss. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I'm, what it has given me is this incredible ability to roll with what's there and what's there and what's there, rather what's I mean, the Buddhist definition of suffering is to want something to be something other than it is. Yeah, and the distance so between I'm, the truth and what your desire is for it to be, yeah. Yeah, so I'm not busy with anything that isn't there. I don't, mm. I don't sweat that. I just, I, you know, sometimes I'm there, sometimes it's a disaster, sometimes it's so shocking. Uh, but I am in that, to the, I'm present to that to the best of my ability. Because what I am is I have a, you know incredible amount of things that I can offer as a resource. And sometimes what I have to offer is, is to be silent, is to just be quiet, is to just sit with that person, not even hold their hand, not embrace them. And as a woman, I can generally you know, embrace people mm. from a neutral place. Um, it's a much safer um, a thing to be doing rather than some other people. So, um, but sometimes I just sit with them and I bear witness to their suffering and I honor that suffering because I see that that is their love transformed. And mm. if that process gets interrupted or tidied up or, or shortened or stifled, then it may take them longer to come to a place of okayness in that, a place of acceptance, a, a, a place of being with what is rather than how they wanted it to be. Or in the sh so shock is another thing, and trauma is trauma is a condition where it's sort of trauma one hundred and one is too much too soon. So mm. sometimes people will see someone die in an accident, and and that that I would say is a traumatic experience or they will be, you know, chatting away with their friends and then they'll pick up the phone and someone will say, someone's just died and that person is very close to you. And so what happens then is sometimes your nervous system will go into shock. Yep. And that's very, you know, they're, they're 
So it's the subtlety of the response and how that person hears that news or what they bear witness to. Or so a lot of people have sudden death and then they have to deal with the police. Mm. And that compounds that distress. So sometimes I, what I'm bringing to that is an unravelling, a, you know, a, a sort of pulling out of the experience with the police and returning to the experience of the death. Mm. And not be, you know, letting that, seeing that as separate and putting it over there, but coming back into their, what they're actually feeling about the loss of that person or that person's death. Mm. Does that all make sense? It does, yeah. Something that really got to me was, um, or really got to me, it's probably an interesting word, but uh, yeah, the, you refer to it as love transformed. Yeah. Can you tell us a little That's bit? Been mm. Yeah, so because I've spent the last 25 years of my life marrying people and burying people and farewelling them or, or um, a, a, assisting people to be with that person while they're dying, whatever. So I see that nearly all of my work is about love. So, mm. um, so for example, I only eat and I'm able to pay my bills and make a living if someone loves each other themselves enough to talk to me while they're dying, someone else loves them enough to give them a funeral, or they love someone else enough to want to get married. So all of my work is really funded by love. And I used, you know, I would say that because it's true. Yeah. And I would say that after about, after about 10 years of that work. But then after about another 15, um, about another five on top of that, uh, so about 15 years into that work, I realized that what people were feeling was their love because if you hear about the neighbor down the road who's just died, even if that's in shocking circumstances, like they, they were on the zebra crossing and a car came along and killed them. Now you hear that news and you say, oh, that's terrible. But it doesn't touch you in a deep emotional response, mm. right? You're just shocked at the news and you might be sad that they are um, – that they are dying. Mm. But if you care for that person, which goes back to that original, uh, it just goes back to that original equation mm. of, of how it affects you. It did what you're saying with your pet or, and what, what was her name? The lady that passed away or my pet? Both. If your uh, pet was a good... <laughs> Brutus was the name of my pet and uh, Bhava was the name of my mentor. Yeah. So if you have an emotional connection to them, mm. you will then have an emotional response to that. But if you love them, then you're going to you're going to have a really big response. It doesn't mm. mean it has it can go in any direction, but but the love you feel for them in that moment of their dying or of their death, it will transform into some other emotion like despair, uh, gratitude, inspiration, abandonment. It can, you know, there's a whole range of emotions. Mm. But, but they, you only feel those really if you love someone. And love and fear are the sort of same things. Hate is an aspect of love. 
<laughs> so, you know, so I'm not a spiritual teacher. I haven't got that all down. Yeah. I'm only speaking from my own experience of being with people, and they're just regular people. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, what I do see is if people know, so if I'm with people who are dying and I can only ask them one question because they don't have much strength and they don't, you know, and the kindest thing to do is is not to grill them. So I don't ask, I don't care what they're dying from, that, that I have nothing to contribute to their medical condition or the treatment of that condition. I don't even ask them what they're dying from or the people around them. But what I do ask them is what do you believe happens when you die? And the answer to that is an incredible resource to the people, other people in the room, or when I retell that at the funeral ceremony, then that will sustain people. So if people say, I believe that I'll become, you know, I'll become a butcher bird or, oh, I'm going to become part of everything or I'm, I'm going to be watching out for you. Mm. Uh, I'm always going to be there. I'm going to, I'm going to be dancing on the top of the mountain. I'm going to be in everything. Mm. Then I'm going to be in the rainbows. I'm going to, and so you can imagine then every time you see one of those things or you feel that experience, you're going to say, oh, there she is. Mm. And so that brings a lot of comfort to people, but it also allows them to have a resource because most people believe in something. And you can watch people when they explain to you what they believe in, even though none of us know, you can watch them. It sort of fills them up. And it's even if it is a placebo, which is what you were saying at the beginning, uh, we all know that placebo works mm-hmm. sometimes, depending on what the condition is. Mm. You know, placebo sometimes can't reverse um, a disease, but it can assist the person to feel better. Mm. So I have a question. Um, you know, we've spoken a lot about um, death and walking with death. Um, any advice you have for those that are? You know, because in one way or another, we're actually all walking towards our death from the moment we're born. We are. In, ways, um, in many ways, in every way, actually. Um, and so any advice for, you know, those that are conscious that they're walking towards their death? Yeah, I think whether you're conscious or not, I mean, we all know that we're born and we're going to die. We don't know when that death will occur. So we don't know the time and place unless we choose to kill ourselves and then we will know the time and place and we have some control over that. So, But most of us want to live and that death will occur sooner or later. But I really do think that the best thing you can do is live that as fully as possible and explore on an internal level and and sort of set a place for death at, at your table. And it sounds like a trite thing, but, for example, when I die, I could die tomorrow. I do a lot of things that could cause my death. And I travel a lot. And so even if I die when I'm overseas, even if I'm murdered overseas, which would not be my preference, but there's a possibility because I travel to America and when I come back, I'm always, I always say, 
wow, I feel really lucky. I never got shot in America. Um, and so I feel like I've won lotto because I didn't get shot in America. But, um, but what will happen when I die? And I'm very loved. I have a lot of great friends. I have a community that really loves me within this community. People are going to say, wow, she really lived that life. And she was as familiar as possible with death. And she would she won't have any, I won't have any regrets when I die. Mm. And so that, because I've lived my life well, that will support them in, in their love for me when I die, regardless mm. of how I die. They will mm. have to, they'll feel their feelings of sadness, but no, no one is going to be distraught when I die because it's and and so I say yes to what life offers me unless I get a big body no. I don't wow. spend a lot of time now um, wanting it to be some other way. Mm. So whatever presents itself, whatever rolls in, I just am with. But a lot of things, a bit like in the ocean when a huge wave is coming, you, can, you, know, that, you can't stop that wave. So you can either dive under it and come up or you can turn to the side and let it smash past you but you don't just stand there and let it hit you like that mm. you work with it and so you know i would but and the opposite of that is you can be a great surfer so you can have all the tools to live your life but if the way if the ocean doesn't offer you a wave it's flat you don't get to be a great surfer but you know that you're a good surfer. You know you're just having a flat day. Mm. So the best you can do is is prepare for that, is to, and I asked the Dalai Lama this once many years ago. I said, you know, what, what can people do so that when we die, the people left behind don't hurt so much? Mm. And his response was, if you live a good life, if you live the best you can, it's almost impossible for them to they might hurt for a moment like I do now where I'm sad. But they'll remember you with quickly, a smile. Yeah, that quickly transforms because, and not only a smile, but you can feel that person throughout your heart. It's an embodied experience of love that you have experienced with that person and you that will arise. Mm. I love that. It's almost like you owe it to your loved ones to live your life well in, in a way. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Well, yeah, you don't owe it to them. You owe it to yourself, in, really. <laughs> that's right. But that is the fallout from that or that is a consequence of that. That's brilliant. So really you owe it to people, loved ones, and even people you don't know and the planet, everything to, mm. to live um, – not just as fully as you can, but as well as you can in, in co cooperation with others to be kind, mm. to be considerate, to, you know, to live as sustainably. Um, you know, we can all behave badly, but then you own it, mm. you know. But, you know, but it doesn't matter what's happening around you. It's all on the inside. And, you know, it's a life's journey to become the best person that you can be and to live that life as well as you can, and to be of benefit to others, not just for your own. I mean, people can accumulate lots of wealth and money, 
but a lot of them are empty. You know, they're mm-hmm. trying to fill up a void of emptiness on the inside because they don't have um, a fullness. But you don't have to own anything to have a fullness. That's brilliant. You only have to, you know, own your own life and and really to, you know, the big. It's the Monty Python. You know, the meaning of what's the meaning of life? Mm. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Who cares? Who mm. cares? It's such an incredible experience. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. To be a human being is just such an extraordinary experience. To be in a functioning, healthy body, especially as an adult with the amount of uh, things you can fully experience as an adult. You know, as children, you, ex- you know, you can experience lots of wonderful things and lots of terrible things, mm-hmm. and the same as an adult. But, but if we have a functioning mind and nervous system and emotional responses, we're very fortunate because not everyone has that. Sure. So I don't yeah. know. So my last, um, I'm, I'm slowly getting to the end. I know I'm just so uh, engrossed in our conversation here. Um, one question off the topic of death is you've mentioned this quite a bit and actually I set an intention for this this year, um, is kindness. What does kindness yeah. mean to you? Well, I think we all know what kindness feels like. We know what it feels like when someone is kind to us. Mm-hmm. And we know what it feels like when we are kind to others. And it can be something very small. Mm, usually is. So I, yeah. <laughs> and gem, generally, so I very rarely use the word compassion, which goes mm. back to the thing about language, because I don't really know what compassion means. I don't, but I really don't know what it feels like. Mm. But I know what, I can open the door for someone. I can pick something up that they've dropped. I can pick up a hitchhiker and go a little bit further than where they need to go to make that easier for them. Mm. And I can do it. It's so easy. And I have a baseline where I just have to make a difference for one person a day. Mm. And it's a good day. And it's very easy to achieve that. Mm. And, and so sometimes I do something for someone and I think, wow, if I don't do anything all year, that was such a big um, assistance to them. For example, when people, um, you know, get to get their baby back from the their baby who's died back from the hospital, because I understand the law involved in that, mm. and and when I see what a difference that makes to the parents, then I just think, well, oh, that's a good day, mm. right? and then I ca- and then I carry on with my day, but. Kindness, I think, so I would encourage people to sort of, unless you are practicing Buddhist or you're practicing, you know, serious religious practitioner or whatever, and you really get what compassion is, great. But for regular people like us, Mm. and probably like most of the people listening, then my currency is kindness. Mm. So I'm trading in in kindness every day, all day, and it, the, the rewards internally and externally and in ways that I never even know in the ripple-out effect are bound, boundless. Mm. But so the thing about kindness is it, it's a win for everyone. 
it's a win for, for the for the person the kind the kinder and the kindy you know whatever the phrase is for that but we all know and years ago I married this couple who I'm still friends with. I didn't know them before I married them. And they had this as their wedding, one of their wedding vows. I promise when you're not feeling well to be kind to you and look after you. And everybody at that wedding went, oh, when they heard that because it landed in them. They all knew what it felt like to be unwell and for someone to be kind to you. And so it's much better to, to be doing something that you can feel, that you can embody, that has a, an embodied response in the giving and the receiving yeah. than some conceptual compassion. Good, good on compassion. I don't want to knock it. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I, I direct experiences, kind, yeah. Kindness is an incredible currency. It doesn't cost you well, it costs you. It costs you something, mm. but the return is so great. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so, uh, one, yeah, just closing up now. Um, a question that I'm wanting to ask you now is: What do you believe happens when you die? I I don't actually have a belief. Mm. I don't. And so, because I'm busy right now, living as fully as I can. But my pra- I only have one practice. I don't meditate. I don't um, do a whole lot of things. I'm living my life fully. But this is my only practice, which is um, to be with what is and to see the perfection of everything as it unfolds rather than in retrospect so that when I die, I don't miss it. So basically I haven't spent 25 years on that cold face <laughs> for, for something that I know will come, but I don't know how it will come. So mm. if I am present to that, so every, all the time, so if I'm driving along, I, I'm present to the fact that something could wipe me out very at any moment. A car could jump the light, come around the corner, anything, because I do not want to miss that moment of death because it will only be then that I will get the answer to that question. Mm. And um, so I'm compelled to I sort of believe a certain thing because from other people's experience and what they have told me and, um, and what they have experienced. But from a physic, physics point of view, you know, nothing becomes nothing. Can't be, you know, it transforms into energy. Something transforms into something but I really I don't want to miss it and there's I gave a paper a little while ago which was about death and sex which is another whole topic but basically the French as you probably know call orgasm the small death yeah mini death (laughs) that's right la petite mort and I gave a paper which said if orgasm is the small death is death the total body orgasm? Ah. And when the body knows it's dying, mm. it releases endorphins. Mm. So a lot of people are with someone in the room and suddenly that person who's been um, you know, sleeping a lot will suddenly sort of wake up, be fully present, look at people, sometimes speak, 
but be totally there uh, and the room will flood with an energy mm. and then the person will fall back and die. Uh, or sometimes they don't wake up, but suddenly at the moment of death, people in the room will go, can you feel that? Can you feel that? Because the endorphins that the brain is releasing are surging into the body, but just like testosterone and other hormones, they exude out of the body. You know how you can smell testosterone? You can taste it when someone's like pumped up and full yeah. of it. Yeah. And it's the same. So the human body is so amazing that it, it and women's body is so amazing for birthing, but we we are all geared, our bodies are made to die. Mm. And it comes as no surprise to me when I found that out that that was a possibility. <laughs> so I don't want to miss that moment. How <laughs> would anybody would have missed that moment? So my my whole life is a practice for that moment of being present. Mm. Okay. I think that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. So for those that want to tune into Zenith Virago, how do they get in touch with you? What's the best way? Is it to get a copy of your book or is it to reach out to you somewhere? How do people find you? I know you've got a beautiful website. Yeah, so I I have a small charity which is called the Natural Death Care Centre Mm -hmm. and we're part of that global movement for offering services for people uh, or just information really. Mm. Uh, as well as education. So I teach a three-day, most of the time now I spend traveling and teaching about death and dying uh, for people who want to enhance their already existing skills or wake up their capacity because we all have the inherent capacity to die well. Mm. And so, but some people just want to wake it up and some people feel they have a calling. I wouldn't say I have a calling, but some people do feel that. So, um, you know, you can look online, the Natural Death Care Centre. There's, there's a small docu- independent documentary that some people from America made called Zen and the Art of Dying, which, you know, is uh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> there's a book. But really the biggest resource people have is themselves. Mm. And, you know, so look at your language say yes to what life offers you, especially if it's around death, um, and put yourself into those experiences, not in an obtrusive way, but in a gentle and kind way, um, and start to become familiar and, you know, and, and look at things that may be challenging and, you know, try your best to, to increase your capacity a little bit every day. Mm. so but i think everyone has the inherent capacity to do death well thank you so much for sharing that and um my last question and by no means my least question it's esoteric in its nature um zenith beyond death beyond life beyond the name beyond the work that you do who are you Uh, i am someone i'm a woman i love being a woman (laughs) i'm a woman who is living the best life i can live i'm having the most amount of experiences i can have whilst being of benefit to others and i you know i'm that's i don't know i probably think that we're spiritual beings having a human 
experience. And mm. but the human body is so capable of so much pleasure mm. and joy. And uh, and so I'm very busy having a joyful, kind, rewarding, exciting, adventurous life. And um, every day, I, you know, I swim in the ocean every day. You know, I engage with people. I say yes to invitation. Mm. Uh, I'm very. My life's been more than I could possibly have imagined. Mm, incredible thank you so much for sharing that and thank you i really want to thank you for being here today taking the time and the energy to really sit here with me process through some of my stuff but also help others with the journey of death and uh you know it is something that is somewhat taboo in our culture and uh, just i love the energy that you bring taboo. around scrap yeah. taboo out of yeah. your, out of your vocabulary that. yeah because that's you're perpe- you're perpetuating a concept mm. that is not helpful at all yeah, and so just even the energy with which how clean and how easy it was to talk to you about this was really helpful. Um, and so I don't just want to thank you for today. I also want to thank you for, you know, the past, you know, like the 10, 15, 25 years. I know you don't spend a lot of time thinking about the past, but also just showing up along all those little moments, you know, to inform the conversation and the person that you are today so that we can have this really nourishing conversation for the listeners. So thank you for that. And just wishing you thank all the you. best with the future ahead and everything that's coming your way. Thank you. And I, I have to say that when I come to this conversation, we all come to this mm. conversation, all the people who I've worked with, who I've, you know, travelled that journey of death and dying with, and, you know, we all come to offer you this conversation, not just me. It's an embodied, it's embodiment of all of those experiences. I feel really honoured to have that conversation today. Thank you so much. Great. You're welcome. Hey Tribe, thanks for tuning in to another fun, enlightening episode of the Inspired Evolution. I've been loving all the feedback and personal stories of love, uh, health and growth. Your feedback and stories are incredibly welcome. The easiest way to connect with me is via my website, which is www.amrit-sandu.com. You can leave me a message or a comment. It's one of my highest values to connect, so I love to connect and love to hear from you. You can also find me on Facebook, Amrit Sandu. And if the content has been resonating with you, you can help the Inspired Evolution out in a big way by liking the YouTube channel, subscribing to the Inspired Evolution, or the Facebook page, like that please, at the Inspired Evolution, or by leaving a review on iTunes if you're on an Apple device. And also, if the Inspired Evolution episodes are inspiring an evolution within you, or you can feel the inspiration is valuable for your team to evolve to the next level, you can head on over to www.amrit-sandu.com to see how the Inspired Evolution can help you and your team thrive. Much love, tribe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.